This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Do you ever wonder why people follow dictators, even when those dictators are bad actors like the Hitlers of the world? Or what important role democracy has in business and government? How can wisdom help you to transform your life, navigate around landmines, and lead a successful life? Today's return guest, Jeff Rasley, has some important insights on these and other subjects. Jeff Rasley is the author of 14 books and over 80 articles published in academic and mainstream periodicals, including Newsweek, Chicago Magazine, ABA Journal, Family Law Review, and Friends Journal. He has appeared as a featured guest on over 150 radio and podcast programs. Jeff is the president of the Bassa Village Foundation, secretary of the Scientech Foundation, board member of the Indianapolis Peace and Justice Center, a trustee of Earlham College, and co-founder of the Jeff and Alicia Radsley Internship Program for the ACLU of Indiana. Jeff is a graduate of the University of Chicago, BA Magna Cum Laude, Phi Beta Kappa, all academic, all state football team, and letter winner in swimming and football, Indiana University School of Law, JD Cum Laude, Moot Court and Indiana Law Review, Christian Theological Seminary, Masters of Divinity, Magna Cum Laude, Co Valedictorian, and Faculty Award Scholar. He has been admitted to the Indiana U.S. District Court and U.S. Supreme Court bars. Jeff, welcome back to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Karen. Good to be with you again. It's a delight to have you. You know, Jeff, last time that you were here, we talked about your book, You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found, and how your wife told you to take a hike. And you ended up in the Himalayan mountains where you fell in love with the Basa people and regained your own sense of balance. That was actually a great episode. Really enjoyed that and invite people to go back and take a listen and look for it again. Well, it was fun to talk with you then, and it'll be fun to talk with you again today. Thank you so much, Jeff. You know, this time we are talking about your new book that's come out, which is called 72 Wisdoms, which is a compilation of wisdom perspectives from people of different backgrounds, faiths, and cultures. So tell us about why you wrote 72 Wisdoms and what you hope readers will gain from the book. Sure, thanks. I noticed that almost every day from all sorts of different sources, I was coming across little nuggets of wisdom that I wanted to try to retain. About a year uh, before uh, the book was published, I started writing down every day or so some wisdom that caught my attention that I thought was worth you know, trying to remember. 
because, you know, so much information just passes through us every day. And after I had about 10, I thought, well, it would be really interesting to not just know these words, but to, you know, really look into who said it, what was the context, why did they say it or write it, and what did it really mean if I really thought deeply about it and looked into the history uh, of that uh, saying. And then after I did that with a few of the wisdoms I had saved, I thought maybe this could be a book. So I just started writing. And eventually, when I got to about 50, my wife said, so how many of these are you going to do? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe 100. And she said, way too many. <laughs> you got to stop. So pick a number, uh, less than 100. And I settled on 72, and that turned into the book. Your wife is uh, always involved in these programs as well. <laughs> she does keep getting in here. I'm going to have to talk to her about that. Yes, well, it's a good thing. So it means she's a great partner for you. So Jeff, the reason I really wanted to speak to you today is that I was so intrigued by your perspective on why people gravitate to dictators like the Hitlers of the world, and which of the wisdoms can help with this toxic attraction. So tell us a little bit more about why it is that people do follow dictators, and what is it that you learned in the wisdoms that would help us to better understand? Yeah, thanks. Well, what really intrigued me in that respect was with the... Um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And so I have uh, a couple wisdoms that are targeted to that. President Zelensky's speech to the UK's parliament is one of those. And the question that it rose in my mind is why would all these young Russian men who are being conscripted, be willing to go and fight for a cause that is very hard to justify on any sort of moral grounds. And the only justification that's been offered by Putin is that Ukraine should be part of Russia. Ukraine is not a real country. It's really part of Russia. And so despite that, it's a, a nation recognized by the rest of the world, I'm going to just take it over. And so how do you get people to accept something that seems, at least to me, so unreasonable, so unethical, and just so wrong? That's really where it started. And then a few of the wisdoms th that are you know related to this topic are also about uh, the polarization of countries, particularly ours, uh, for some time now. And why is it that leaders within a democracy are able to draw people to become fanatical followers as opposed to just, well, you know, I, I'll vote for this politician, I like this politician's uh, stand on issues better than the opponents, but to become really 
fanatical followers, which can ultimately lead to fascism, which, of course, the most obvious example is what happened in, in Germany, uh, the Nazi party led by Adolf Hitler. So it sounds like there's something that goes on that provokes people to do the following. And I'd like to hear more about that when you talk about, you know, the fascism or you talk about what is it that convinces people to move forward to follow a Putin, for example, or to follow a Hitler when clearly these ideologies are harmful to other people? The <laughs> Hitler developed a playbook which was then adopted by Stalin, which has been adopted by Putin, and which, I'm sorry to say, has been adopted by our own Donald Trump. And this playbook was developed by uh, Nazi social scientists and refined by a Soviet uh, social scientist who's name I'm forgetting right now, uh, but it's in, in uh, actually a previous book called Polarize, uh, the case for civility in the time of Trump that I wrote that really focuses on this issue. And the essence of the, the playbook that dictators and authoritarian figures with fascist leanings have followed is a psychological method of attracting followers by using propaganda and uh, most recently by using social media and by manipulating the, the press and the uh, popular media. And the central technique is to push the buttons of anger, resentment, contempt, so that all of the sort of innate prejudices that, you know, all of us have to some extent to current uh, young people will say other, they, we, we other people, so that the people who would normally perhaps be on the other side on a political issue or in different political party become the enemy. And they become the enemy or the other by uh, manipulation to really bring out the prejudices uh, that people have, which can be, you know, across the board, they can be racial, they can be ethnic, they can be ideological, they can be religious, any way that there are difference, recognizable differences among a population, the, the technique of the dictator, the fascist, the Marxist that employs this method is to find those buttons to push and then to push them, you know, through speeches, through manipulation of the press, through manipulation of social media. And so you, you get people roused up angry, resentful, and contemptuous of the other, and you wrap that into a message that puts you, the dictator, the, the great leader, as someone leading this charge against the foe, uh, but 
you know, bringing to, together your group of followers. So it sounds like there's a lot going on at the emotional level in terms of riling up the emotions and then the different platforms are being hijacked for the purpose of a specific set of messages that are crafted. And what I see is maybe a piece of it is that the full information about an issue or a people or anything is not disclosed. Rather, people are getting maybe a partial message that in essence is untrue because it doesn't tell the whole story. And so people then are responding to the half-truth and that's where we get the emotional response to it, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, that's right. It is emotion-based. There's a use of the rational mind in the sense that a message will be articulated, which you can you know, look at as a rational statement. You know, one of the popular statements of the Nazis was uh, that the uh, Versailles Treaty after World War One was unfair to Germany. Uh, it reduced Germany's cap uh, industrial and military capacity, and so the motherland had been trod upon, you know, disrespected in more local or uh, more popular lingo, current lingo. You know, there's a there is clearly a rational basis for that in the sense that. The treaty, um, the surrender after World War I by Germany was conditioned on some very harsh conditions that Germany had to pay the Allies uh, a lot of money in reparations, and uh, it lost territory that it had gained in the war and, and so forth. And so, you know, there is this truth that is a, a statement that makes sense on a rational level but then it's manipulated by taking what could be considered uh, an accurate statement and moving away from just an intellectual you know, discussion uh, of that as to whether that's true whether uh, and what we should do about it to moving into that very emotional level of we have been wronged by this. You know, we have anger, we have resentment, and then we have contempt for those on the other side, those that are not with us, those that have not suffered in the same way that we have. So in one sense, one of the things we could say is that just because something is rational doesn't mean that it's true, first of all. And even if there's a partial truth in there, it doesn't mean there's a full truth in there. And so in this heightened state where the rational statement is made and then the people are riled up at an emotional level, as a psychologist, of course, I know that we're not always thinking at our best when we're coming from the emotional standpoint alone from the cognitive and analytical and rational part of ourselves. So then it's easy to insert in perhaps what is more of a lie to the second half of that, that the people also believe is true. So the emotions are the bridge between the first rational statement to the second rational statement, which is really out the window in a sense. Yeah. Um, you know, learning, we have a base of knowledge 
And then we build on that base of knowledge by metaphor, analogy, additional information. And so that learning, you know, takes us from one understanding that is rational, that, you know, is provable, that makes sense, logical, whatever, to another one, and then another and another. And so instead of following that trajectory, the propagandist, the fascist, will instead go in the other direction in the sense of taking a statement or an understanding that could be built on to create a greater, higher level of understanding down into that you know, more primordial, primitive level of emotion, which you know, triggers our uh, amygdala into the, the fight or flight response. So that when we're working at that sort of base brain level, primitive, the primitive aspect uh, of our intellect, instead of seeking understanding, we're now operating on fear or anger. And, and so again, this when someone is working at that level, that's when they're easy to manipulate because the instinct is to fight or flight. And so if you're motive, you know, trying to motivate people into this movement of, of follow me, you use that level of the, the primitive brainstem to, you know, fight. And I'm going to lead you in the fight. Another aspect is that these kind of movements are most successful during troubled times, during economic disruption, you know, recession, depression, or just when there's a social upheaval. Because, you know, when society is stressed and there's upheaval and people are unhappy with the state of affairs in their community, they look to a leader, you know, who's going to lead us out of this mess. And so the strong man or strong woman who steps up and is able to connect with that primitive fight or flight instinct is the person that will gain those followers. And so if you, you know, m most recently, you know, you look at the language that Donald Trump uses. And again, he's just using the same playbook that was developed by the Nazis. He always uses terms that indicate strength and courage, the biggest, the best, the strongest, the greatest, even we'll say the most beautiful. All of these terms are, are extremes. And that's because, you know, people who are upset, you know, who feel like the country is chaotic, that the world that was supposed to be a certain way is not turning out that way, at least in their lives, you know, they want to latch on to somebody who's going to give them the biggest, the best, the strongest, the most beautiful. And so those terms are repeated over and over by the, the people that are crafting that movement and by the, you know, the great leader. So there's typically some need that the people have that they would like to have fulfilled and the manipulation occurs because 
there's partial information, partial truth, and the emotional riling up to the fight flight kind of situation. And what I would add is there's also suppression of information that is true and part of the story. And you can't make a good decision without knowing that other half. So for example, I know we did a show not too long back when we were talking about the fact that over in Ukraine, this is just one example, there was one case where a family had a country home and the Russian soldiers took over the home and the family said, where are we going to live? And ultimately they lived in the same house together. They shared information. And what the Russian soldiers learned is that the narrative that they had been fed and that they had been told about why they were there and what the people of Ukraine wanted wasn't really true. And faced with that and this new information, they actually shifted how they viewed the scenario and apologized even for being there because now they had a broader view of what was going on. So I think suppression of information is also part of the manipulation that often happens in cases like this. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a great example. In fact, I have kind of a, a similar one um, of Ukraine. One of my former students married a Ukrainian woman who lives in the United States, but her family lives in the ethnically Russian uh, portion of eastern Ukraine, the Donetsk area that's, you know, been in the news because it's really, you know, been fought over very heavily. Her family was initially sympathetic to the idea of breaking away from Ukraine, becoming part of Russia, because their family, ethnically, they're Russian although their family's been in Ukraine for a number of generations. Well, after the war started and the Russian army came in and took over their village, they realized that, you know, this effort by Russia to take over the nation of Ukraine was, you know, not just something that was, uh, you know, an expression of ethnicity, but it was a violent, attempt to, for one country to take over another and their allegiance has shifted completely they are now very pro-ukrainian nationalist and so your point of a partial truth or another truth a related truth being suppressed in their case you know there was a truth oh well you know we we feel ethnically russian but what they hadn't realized until it really happened that to stop being Ukrainian and to be invaded and violently taken over by Russia is a very different experience than just feeling an affinity with Russia of, oh, well, you know, we have a shared ethnicity, but there's still this nation state Ukraine, which they now, <laughs> they now very much, you know, feel the truth of that, that Ukraine is a nation in and of itself. So let me come back to something that you were saying about the United States. If we take the, I'll call it, I don't know, insurrection, riot, whatever word you want to use that happened on the U.S. Capitol, how would you say something like that how could somebody pull that off in the United States? What role would you say that Donald Trump had in that? 
you know, it really depends on how far you want to go back. You know, I mentioned this other book I, I wrote was actually published back in 2017, which analyzed the history of polarization in our country, going back to the Civil War and moving forward. But the, the modern, the tools of modern manipulation, which ultimately inspired the insurrection of January 6th, started with AM radio back in the 70s. Rush Limbaugh is the most well-known uh, proponent use of AM radio to incite uh, the emotions of anger, resentment, contempt. Cable news then has adopted some of those same techniques, and social media has been used to adopt some of those same techniques. And so we now have a population that for several decades has been exposed to the techniques of inciting us into a state of anger, resentment, contempt. And Donald Trump used those same tools. And then on, you know, after he lost the election, continued to make the claim that he had actually won the election because, you know, as the uh, one of the techniques of propaganda is to repeat a lie over and over and over and over, and the followers will believe it. And some people who were not necessarily followers, but hear that lie or that half-truth repeated over and over will come to believe it through, because of the media that they're listening to, watching, absorbing. And so his followers were prepared emotionally for that moment when, you know, he basically said, go, you know, we will go to the Capitol. And he said he would go to the Capitol. You know, his followers thought that he was leading them, even if not physically present, in fact, you know, most of them thought he would be physically present, but uh, emotionally, they were following him into the Capitol. They were doing his bidding, and they had been prepared through this history of the manipulation of certain of our forms of media to be willing to, you know, to break the law, to become insurrectionists when they were ordered to. And they felt like if you, you know, a number of the people that have been tried for the entering the Capitol illegally have said, we thought we were following orders. This is all quite disturbing, of course, as you can imagine that how easy it is to shift people off of, the, let's say, their center to another place, and often for a nefarious purpose. Let's bring it back to the corporate environment and to the business environment. Many times there are corporate leaders who also kind of like heavy-handed dictator types and may rule with the iron fist and so on and so forth. So what's the parallel between, we've been talking about the political governments now, what's the parallel that relates to business and what do we need to think about on the business end? You know, I think on the business side, in one sense, it's 
easier to use these techniques within a company in the sense that if I'm an employee, you know, my livelihood depends on my loyalty to the company, to my boss. You know, there's a, a, in a way, a more immediate and an even stronger bond than perhaps you might feel just as a citizen or a member of a political party. But you can quit your job. You know, quitting your job is a lot easier than leaving your country. It may be more difficult than leaving your political party. So, you know, there are different, you know, different levels of uh, attachment, both, you know, economically and psychologically to the organization, be it business, political party, religious organization, government, country. And so, you know, how uh, strong those bonds are for every person within an organization is going to be a factor. But if you have within your organization a leader who's employing the, the, the techniques that we've been talking about, then the company can have that same sort of trajectory. Now, the thing, though, about business is you have to succeed to keep going. A leader may be, you know, inspire that kind of level of loyalty and, you know, I'll do whatever you tell me, tell me to jump and I'll jump. And if it's off a cliff, I'll jump off a cliff. But if the business falls off the cliff, well, it's over. You know, it's not the same thing as Russia, you know, taking all these young men to war. I mean, eventually a, a country will be could be defeated in a war, um, but the consequences are much greater than a business being driven into bankruptcy. It's sort of, uh, in fact, I think you and I talked about this uh, before uh, in one of our off-air conversations, is something that's great uh, about a capitalist economy is that, in a way, it's a much more truer democracy than a political democracy in the sense that consumers, you know, we vote, we vote with our dollars, we vote with what I buy. And so if a business organization is going in a direction that really is counterproductive, that, you know, maybe it has some level of loyal following, but it's ineffective, it isn't generating sales, it will fail. So in all of these situations, and I know that there are different levels of stakes as you've you know articulately identified here, thinking of the wisdom principles, what can people do to recognize when these manipulations may be going on? What can they do to make a different choice even in spite of them? How can they stay conscious of what may really be true versus what they may be exposed to through propaganda. Yeah, and something I think that's uh, really sort of distressing that's kind of underlying your question is the effectiveness of our American educational system. Uh, Americans have rightly been proud of the fact that you know, for over 100 years now, we've had a, a public education system where everybody, uh, by law, 
is entitled to an education at least up through age 16 in most states. That's not true of all countries. There are a great many countries uh, to this day that don't have a public education or a national educational system. But <laughs> it makes me wonder uh, how effective our system is currently when we see so many people that are so easily manipulated by the techniques we've been talking about. And so, you know, coming back to your question, the number one way to insulate yourself from becoming a pawn within the, the kind of manipulative movement that leads to fascism or leads to Stalinism or Maoism or Putinism or Trumpism is to be educated, to learn how to think critically. You know, the true education is not just acquiring information. That's certainly part of it. But the essence of real education is learning how to think. And, and that means learning how to think critically. And so to be able to avoid doing what we've been talking about, when there's a statement made and you feel your own sort of prejudices, biases being tapped into, okay, to be able to identify, this is my emotional self. I'm reacting emotionally. And that's certainly appropriate to art, you know, poetry, literature, cinema, dance, you know, painting, all of the beauty uh, to a large extent that we connect with emotionally. But when it comes to acting politically or acting as a consumer, we need to recognize when there's an emotional pull and then decide, does that make sense? Is this bringing out the best in me? Is this bringing out, is it moving me toward to act on it? Is it moving me in the direction that I want to move in? Does it connect with my values? And so if we're educated, we will be able to recognize when we're reacting to something and to then suppress that reaction that is simply bias, prejudice, anger, resentment, contempt, and look at it analytically and decide on the conscious, rational level, okay, what do I do with that? And maybe it's what I do with it is ignore it. You know, what we're talking about now is quite important. I recall in my own growing up years, one of the things I really valued about the education that I received and also the way things were in my home is that we were taught to be critical thinkers. We were taught to analyze information and data, and we were allowed at home and in school to have a different opinion than what the party line might be. And it's a way of, you know, you take that diamond and you look at it from all different angles and you see, you know, what can you really learn about it? And sometimes I might see something maybe my parents didn't see, or I might see something that the teacher didn't see. And yet that was okay because that was true education. It wasn't just memorizing, I'll say, the party line on something, whether it be spiritual or just academic. 
Yeah, and, and that you know brings up an aspect of this that we haven't really touched directly on, which is peer pressure. Being able to look at something where, okay, this is the conventional way of seeing this. This is how, like, if you're a student, you know, this is how my other classmates, my peers, my friends, they they see it this way or they understand it this way, but. That doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's true. That doesn't mean it's ethically correct. And so to have that ability instilled in you, in which, yeah, I mean, I think it, it certainly starts in the family to be able to think just because this group of people accepts this as true doesn't mean it necessarily is true. And so yeah, uh, thinking critically requires at times courage. It isn't just an intellectual ability. It's also the ability to sometimes, as you say, not follow the party line that the majority is wrong. And that, that, that can take real courage. Yeah, it certainly is not always popular. I'm thinking about from a Christian perspective, and you know, that's the lens that I usually look through things um, at the world through. I'm thinking about what it means sometimes to be a peculiar generation. You're going to stand out and not always be following the crowd or the party line, and you have to have the strength to take stands sometimes that may not be popular or to look at things in a very different way. So that's one piece of it. And then the whole notion, you know, from a biblical perspective where it says, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction. A lot of people are going to be on that pathway, and there may be fewer that are on the path that's really leading to a more productive place to go. So sometimes we have to not just say, because it's lonely on this path, or not as many people here, that means it's not the right path. It may very well be the right path. And the critical thinking skills and the ability to analyze and to look at information and lots of data and to see what's really happening that's an important skill. And I kind of am concerned that in our educational system today, we may not be training children as much to be critical thinkers as happened in my day. I'm concerned about it too. And from personal experience, I have taught a class uh, at a couple uh, local universities here in Indianapolis, Marion University and Butler University. And the last class I taught was uh, last semester. I had not taught for a few years because I didn't teach during the pandemic. And so I had a three or four year break in teaching. And the generational divide, the, so the, the last, the second to last class I taught would have been the youngest uh, millennials. And then this last class I taught would be the oldest Gen Zers or older Gen Zers. I really experienced a difference. Now, you know, my own anecdotal uh, experience of one class of 15, 18 to 22 year olds doesn't really prove anything, but I've had other educators express a similar point of view that uh, the this class was by far the least intellectually tough and intellectually engaged class I've 
taught. And their written work was by far the worst. And what's really troubling about this is it's an honors class. So these students are at least supposedly uh, the best and the brightest of Butler University, which is a, it's a very good private university. I was both disappointed and shocked by the kind of lack of intellectual vigor that my students had. Now, part of that was we were coming right out of the pandemic. Halfway through the semester uh, was when masks were allowed to come off. But the first half of the semester, we were masked up. And uh, the effect of the pandemic, suppressing social interaction, not being in classrooms and so forth, you know, is, is one, one reason that they are just emotionally repressed because of what they had experienced. Um, so I hope that that means it's temporary, but I think it's more than just temporary. So we're really uncovering what I would say are potentially some vulnerabilities in today's world that might make us in some respects more vulnerable to some of the kinds of issues that you're talking about, both in terms of the education system, also in terms of emotional intelligence, connectedness of people, the quality of relationship, all of that. And then I would even contend, you know, a spiritual component that, you know, we're not as connected sometimes even to to God and what God says, where we could have even wisdom beyond ourselves. So with that backdrop and all of that in mind, let me pose something else. Some people would even say that how we handled the pandemic it's also indicative of these very principles you've been bringing up, these problematic things of the narrative <clears throat> and the, you know, riling up people emotionally and so on and so forth. So as you think about that, we've already talked about how important it is for people to have critical thinking skills and to have true education. What else is important as the response and antidote and apply it a little bit to even this pandemic handling? Yeah, we know a lot more now than we did when the, you know, the virus first broke out and was turning into a pandemic. So it's, um, I think in a way, you know, it's easy to do some Monday quarterbacking, but doing that, I think some, uh, you know, really critical mistakes were made where the country in a way, had an opportunity to be brought together by a national challenge. Instead, it was divided. I think to some extent, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, I think the Trump administration did that intentionally, that took on a kind of oppositional attitude uh, in some respects towards the, the pandemic. But, you know, looking back at it, it seems to me very clear that the mandates uh, to shut down businesses was a mistake. And we can really see that in China now. China, you know, had the fastest growing of the major economies 
and has now slowed down its rate of slowdown, you know, greater uh, than the countries that either were only temporarily shut down um, or didn't really shut down. A mask mandate, was that really, did that make sense in the cities that did that? You know, I think that's still debatable. There is evidence that masks are, to a certain extent, effective in slowing the spread of the disease. But something that I think was really lost in the whole approach, the the government approach to this, is trying to recognize what's the balance between individual freedom and choice, which is a fundamental American value, versus the government's responsibility to promote public safety. And instead of having, you know, really figured out what that balance should be, we just sort of, you know, threw ourselves in one direction and then the other. And uh, it, it just, I think, our country in particular, which you can see by the death rate that, uh, you know, we were one of the worst, had, you know, one of the, the highest levels of mortality that, um, you know, we really didn't figure that out very well. And it's a shame because the science in this country is the best in the world. We should have been uh, at least one of the best in the world in terms of finding what that balance was. And I, I think we did a very poor job of it. Well, one of the things that I would say and that I actually like about Monday back quarterbacking is that you can learn lessons for going forward. And when I think about it, one of the lessons to learn going forward is to ask some good questions and to seek alternative pathways other than maybe the one that's being revealed. Because again, it's a matter of this information is being shared, but what information is not being shared that could also be relevant. So I think as we think about the Monday quarterback scenario, it's a learning opportunity. And those of us who are for education and for people thinking we should promote that, you know, sitting down, let's look at the videos of the game. (laughs) What happened and what would we do differently? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I do hope we learn because this will not be the last pandemic and it certainly is not going to be the last great national challenge or international challenge uh, that we face. And I think you correctly said, too, that there's a balance, particularly in the United States. Uh, This was a whole global pandemic and every country had to, you know, deal with it. In the U.S., we do value individual freedom, and we also value a sense of uh, corporate community safety as well. And perhaps it's not either or. Perhaps you can have both. And if I think back in the past, way, way in the past, some of the ways we've dealt with pandemics is more quarantining of the ill, not of the healthy. (laughs) So there may be something about that that's useful. You know, there are other uh, substances to work well with the bodies that God has designed. Not everything has to be a hardcore pharmaceutical. And maybe there's more exploration that needs to be done on that side of the feds for prevention and so on as well. So these are just important issues. 
not so much just because it's about the pandemic or at work or politics. It relates to all of life and it relates to how we're, we're thinking in general is what occurs to me. Yeah. And actually one of the themes that runs through many of the 72 wisdoms book is finding balance in your personal life leads to a good life to happiness finding balance in your work life leads to success and so finding balance within um, our corporate communal life leads to a better society to a happier nation state i mean it goes back to the ancient wisdoms uh, found in the old testament found in eastern philosophy found in greek philosophy that understanding of the need for finding balance in life is one of those fundamental lessons that you know you'd think we should all know because it is such ancient wisdom and yet it's a struggle for every one of us, and it's certainly a struggle for our community and, and our nation. And, you know, right now, with the uh, high level of polarization we have, that there's a tendency to not be able to find balance because, you know, we're just shifting, you know, from one side to another. And, the, you know, a boat is rocking as opposed to finding that levelness. Um, well, that's an important point, finding balance. So how can people reach you, Jeff? How can they get the book, 72 Wisdoms? Oh, thanks. The easiest way would be through my website, which is my full name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y. And uh, my email is connected to the website. I mean, link to the website. So happy to be emailed um, by any of your listeners that would like to make that personal connection. Wonderful. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. So, Jeff, what would you say are some additional words of wisdom, some pithy thing you would like to leave the community of corporate executives about this whole topic we've been talking about today? Well, I, I think the importance of education. I want to emphasize how important education is for our country, for the, you know, the welfare of the business community, and for our body politic. But I also want to emphasize ethics. And one of the wisdoms or the themes that runs through the book beyond just balance is to live your highest and best self. You need to love yourself as you love God and to love everyone uh, as your brother and sister. And so love, living the, the life of love is also even more important, I would say, than being an educated person. That's really very important. Yes, it starts with love because God first loved us and then we love him and we love each other when we acknowledge who God really is. So thank you so much, Jeff, for being with me today and for engaging this really difficult topic that we've been talking about. 
you know, talk about the dictators of the world. So thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope we will have another discussion sometime soon. We certainly will. We are having another conversation soon. So to everyone out there, let me just close with a few thoughts. Let's take a look at Proverbs, the ninth chapter and verse 10. And it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So when we think about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about reverencing God and reverencing God's word and what he says in the world. And then I'll also turn briefly to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, and read a few verses there, starting with 18. And it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And it says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God. So we know that there's the wisdom of the world. We know that there's God's wisdom, and we aspire to be people who are wise in God. It doesn't mean we ignore other sources of wisdom. However, we test everything by God's wisdom. So have a blessed day. Be wise as you walk throughout all of these life challenges, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.